Please turn your Bibles this morning to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, it's on page 198 of the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you need that Bible, please avail yourself to it. Friends, we have reached the top of the mountain this this morning, completing our study in the book of Joshua, again, on page 198. Have you ever grown tired of saying the same thing over and over and over again to someone? Employee, just do your job, right? Students, your assignment is due tomorrow. Make sure that you have it in on time. Children, for the love of all that is holy, please stop whining, right? Hoping that one great and glorious day, our words might finally stick. You know, as I reflected on our scripture text this morning, I couldn't help but think of how much the ministry of a church involves repetition. The most faithful thing that we as elders can do isn't to come up with our own original exciting material, but to say the same unoriginal yet vital gospel truths over and over and over again. But did you know the most important things in the life and ministry of Redeeming Grace Church are not the things that make us unique or different. The most important things are the things that we share with every gospel preaching church for the last 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. We gather for worship and the word and the celebration of the ordinances. We fellowship in the gospel, right? We sing, we pray, we disciple one another, we evangelize together. We seek to faithfully represent King Jesus in this world, and we do it Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year. Friends, I'm encouraged that we see this same kind of repetition here at the end of of Joshua. As we learned last week, Joshua ends his life, and indeed this book closes with, with two sermons from elderly Joshua to the people of Israel shortly before his death. And if you read Joshua 24 ahead of time, I'm sure you sensed a little bit of deja vu, All over again, as they say, right? The major themes of Joshua 24 are nearly identical to what we studied last week in Joshua 23. Joshua preaches to the congregation of Israel again. His sermon recounts for them God's mighty acts in history again. The main point of it all is how the people should respond to the Lord in light of His grace again. In my imagination of this text, I can, I can just see an, an Israelite elder asking old Joshua, this is probably your last sermon, Joshua. What are you going to preach this time around? Joshua smiles. His aged eyes sparkle amid the crinkles of time that now mark his elderly face. And he says, I'm going to preach once again the good news of all that God has done for us so that we might love him with all of our hearts and live for him. Joshua knows that the only thing that can adequately compel obedience to God is the magnitude of our God's grace. So let's read Joshua's final sermon, starting in verse 1 of chapter 24. We're going to read down to verse 28. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come up over them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed before them, I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which is a symbol of terror, I think. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you the land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to, to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us, brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve in his voice. We will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. 
Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with the Lord your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And this is the word of the Lord. Friends, what I just read over the last few minutes is a sermon, but obviously it's more than a sermon. Joshua's message in chapter 24 is part of a a solemn ceremony that ends with Joshua making a covenant with the people. He, in essence, kind of renews the covenant obligations that the Lord had already established with His people through Moses at Sinai. And friends, actually, we've seen something like this, this kind of covenant renewal at Shechem earlier in Joshua. In fact, in Joshua 8, following on the heels of of Achan's sin and the devastation of judgment among the, the people, Joshua renewed the covenant at Shechem, renewed their commitment to the Lord. I think the central thrust, the main idea of Joshua's sermon is found in verse 14. Verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. You might say it this way, in light of all that God has done, therefore fear and serve your promise-keeping God with genuine, enduring allegiance. That's the main idea of the text that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. Fear and serve your promise-keeping God with genuine, enduring allegiance. Friends, three points this morning drawn straight from the structure of the text. Number one, from verses 2 to 13, a history of stunning grace. A history of stunning grace. Number two, from verses 14 to 28, the demand in light of this grace, the demand for exclusive devotion. And finally, number three, well, you have to wait for it. You have to wait for it until later in the sermon. After we read the text, I will give it to you. Get to number three in a bit. Friends, I pray that the Lord might use His Word among us to fasten our hearts to Him in light of His great grace to us. Number one, a history of stunning grace. Remember Joshua's main idea. Joshua wants the people to fear the Lord and to serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. And so friends, what happens next in his sermon might surprise you. I don't know about you, but when I think about what it means to fear the Lord, I so often think of the fear of the Lord as kind of a response to God's majesty of His power as Creator. We fear God because of His of His greatness. And sure, yes, those attributes of God should for sure provoke us to stand in the fear of the Lord. But notice... When Joshua delivers the Lord's words in verses 2 to 13, which are designed to cause the people to fear him, what does the Lord emphasize? Friends, the Lord does not give us an expose of his majesty and power as creator. Instead, he lists his resume of grace and mercy as Israel's redeemer. In verses 2 to 5, God lists his dealings with Abraham and the patriarchs. Just let your eyes scan over the text. Verses 2 to 5, his dealings with Abraham and the patriarchs, the emphasis is on God's gracious, unconditional choice, his election of Abraham. Then in verses 5 to 7, he emphasizes Israel's 400-year, or summarizes Israel's 400-year slavery in Egypt and Israel's salvation through Egypt's judgment. The emphasis is on God's merciful redemption of his people. In verses 8 to 10, God recounts His faithfulness to Israel in the desert during their 40-year wandering. 
The emphasis is on God's protection of His people from King Balak and his for-profit, false-prophet Balaam, whose devious scheme the Lord upended. Finally, in verses 11 to 13, the Lord reminds the people of His power and grace in the conquest of Canaan itself, which we've studied together each week in Joshua. The emphasis is clearly on the inheritance that God graciously gives His people. Friends, did you notice the drumbeat of verses 2 to 14 when I read earlier? Did you notice the drumbeat that pulses through this text? I took, I gave, I sent, I plagued, I brought out, I delivered, I gave, I, I, I. Friends, the hero of the story of redemption is not Israel. Not even close The hero is not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not great Joshua. The hero of the story is Israel's God. The one whose death-defying, idol-crushing grace is their only hope. And so, so friends, just in case you're wondering, okay, what in the world does this have to do with us? Remember, Israel's history of redemption is our history of redemption as Christians. Their story is, is our story. Their Messiah is our King. So friends, I hope what rises in your, in your heart when you read a, a passage like this that recounts the history of God's redemption of Israel is the same thing Joshua was aiming for in his sermon. What a God and King we have. Look at how unimaginably gracious and kind it is. And then it's like your heart trampolines from God's grace to fear and to serve Him with all that you have. See, friends, to fear the Lord as a believer, to fear the Lord is not to be scared of God. It's not a fear that drives us away from God. That's the the fear of unbelievers who are terrified of a God with whom they must give an account. No, for the, the believer, a right fear of the Lord is a fear that drives us toward the Lord. I think... Even we as Christians are kind of guilty of reducing this idea of the fear of the Lord to something like mere reverence. We revere God, and of course that's true. But friends, God is not merely after our reverence when He tells us to fear Him. So often, just like here in this text, the fear of the Lord follows close on the heels of God's revelation of His kindness to us. God is gracious, and so we fear Him. It's actually very, very close to the same type of response Joshua 23 calls for. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. You see, friends, the type of response that God wants from us, this fear of the Lord, is is a trembling, electrified, overwhelmed love that bursts from our hearts because of all that God has done to save us. It's not simply that we fear the Lord for His majesty and love Him for His grace. That's lopsided. No, we also love God for His power, and we tremble before Him at the beauty of His kindness. The fear of the Lord is simply the fitting response of our hearts to all that God is for us. I love how Charles Spurgeon talked about the fear of the Lord. He says that Christian fear falls on its face, leaning toward the Lord. I love that. It trembles, but it leans toward the Lord. It's fear that has baked within it a deep and abiding joy in our our hearts for all that God has done for us. Friends, this is why the Lord reminds Israel of His history with them. He wants them, He wants all of us 
to read this account and respond to his grace with rejoicing and trembling. Fortunately, we don't have time this morning to go verse by verse through this history list, but I want to direct your attention to a few of these exploits of the Lord here in the passage, okay? Especially right here at the beginning. First, I want you to notice God's sovereign and surprising grace. God's sovereign and surprising grace. Look at verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. So, so to start things out, the Lord directs Israel to think about their original ancestor, Abraham. Why? Well, clearly, friends, to remind them that their existence, their entire existence is one of sheer grace. And did you realize that Israel's history is a history that should have never happened? God did not choose Abraham because he was some sort of spiritual all-star, doing it better than all the rest of his fellow people. Now, Abraham was a pagan who would have gladly continued in his idolatry if the Lord had not set his love upon him. Friends, if you think about it, there's, there's no fundamental difference between the dead Canaanites whom God judged in Joshua and the children of Israel who lived in the land. For crying out loud, Abraham worshipped idols. He did the very thing the Canaanites were judged for. The Canaanites got what they deserved, yes, but they also got what Abraham deserved. The only difference between the dead, idolatrous Canaanites and the living, true God-worshipping Israelites was God's unsought, unmerited grace. Of all the idolaters that God could have chosen to start His redemptive purposes through, why did He choose Abraham? Why not Nahor, Abraham's brother? Why not one of the other hundreds of thousands of idolaters in the ancient world? Why did God save Abraham? Friends, the answer must simply be that God chose in the freedom and kindness of His grace, His sovereignty, God chose Him because He loved Him. God has mercy on whom He has mercy. He loved Abraham and therefore Abraham's descendants simply because He chose to love them. The only thing that separated Israel from the Canaanites was God's grace. Brothers and sisters, I want you to imagine for a moment that you have reached Glory, you're in heaven. You're in the new heavens and new earth. There should be like something good that you think about, right? You're delighting in the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Sin and suffering are like a distant memory to you. There's nothing but perfect joy in, in your life. And in this heavenly hypothetical, another Christian comes up to you and asks you, how did you wind up here, brother? How did you make it to heaven, sister? How would you answer? Friends, if you think your answer would start with the words, I did, you may be in danger of missing the gospel. The only right answer to that question starts and ends with God. God chose me. God rescued me through the death of Christ in my place. God sustained the faith that he granted me. God brought me safely home. Friends, the singular difference between Christians and non-Christians, between those who will inhabit heaven for all eternity and those who will inhabit hell, is the grace of God. You say, but I trusted Christ. 
Yes, but why? Well, somebody shared the gospel with me. Okay, but why? What separates you from your unbelieving neighbor or unbelieving family member? Why did God allow you to come in contact with the gospel and not your friends? Why did you respond with a heart of faith and not others? See, friends, anytime you start drilling down into the why of your salvation, you know what you're eventually going to hit? You must eventually hit the unavoidable bedrock of God's sovereign mercy. You didn't respond to Christ in faith because you were better or smarter or wiser. You responded to Christ by faith because of God's grace. In his kindness, God chose you and he called you and he granted you the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to believe. So friends, when is the last time you just kind of marinated for a little while in the sovereign love of God? When's the last time your heart just spontaneously erupted in trembling awe and thanks to a God who was free and would have been right to justly condemn you for all of eternity. And yet he chose to set his love upon you in Christ for reasons only found in the depths of his grace. When's the last time your heart has erupted in the fear of the Lord for that? Election. This doctrine of election is not a dry and dusty part of theology. Friends, this is a doctrine for worship, for humility, for prayer, for evangelism, for our joy, for fearing and serving the Lord. In verse 3, the Lord kind of turns the diamond to show us another facet of his grace. He, he takes us into the mystery of providence. Look at verse 3 again. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan and I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Wait, what? I made Abraham's offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Oh, hold up. I must not be seeing that, right? Okay, well, maybe I should let the Lord explain further. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Okay, one plus two is three. I don't think that's a many offspring, right, by any stretch. Well, remember, God promised Abraham an innumerable offspring, like the stars of the sky, the sands of the seashore. Also promised him the land of Canaan. And yet, after two generations and dozens of years, Abraham had one son of promise, two grandchildren, and no land. In fact, it gets worse. Verse 4 indicates it was wicked Esau who wasn't in the line of promise whom God gave land. Meanwhile, Jacob's family, the line of promise, they were sent down to Egypt and were eventually enslaved for 400 years. In other words, friends, the promises of God unfolded for God's people with painstaking slowness and apparent defeat. And yet time after time, against all odds, when all seemed hopeless, the Lord acted. Just think of what you know of Israel's story. Friends, infertility and old age could not stop the promise. Deceit and treachery and horrific sin did not threaten God's faithfulness. Severe famine only served God's purpose. The world's superpower crumbled when God set his people free. 
The created order was like putty in the hands of the promise-keeping Redeemer. Kings and nations trembled at his voice. See, friends, the marching time of centuries with all of the, the obstacles, all these, these dark things, this is merely the, just the, the, the black canvas on which God paints the brightest colors of his mercy. Friends, you realize that God does not operate on our calendar. He's not intimidated by the clock of history. And yet in his time and in his way, he always delivers. Friends, don't you love the fact that in this resume of God's grace, the Lord doesn't skip over the hard stuff and just kind of list the easy wins? God doesn't avoid talking about the strange hardships he ordains as part of the the story of faith. As one commentator put it, God doesn't hide the rough spots. He doesn't gloss over the perplexities. He doesn't omit the difficulties. He never erases the mysteries or dark times from the record. You can trust a God like that. Here is a straightforward, honest God. I love that. And yet, an honest God, friends, is no good unless He is also utterly sovereign and good and wise. If you're like me so often, you view the hard things in life as an occasion for discontentment. Trials are opportunities to grumble. Unmet expectations become temptations toward doubting the Lord. Why did God put me through this horrible life-altering trauma when they never had to go through that? Why won't God grant our desire for children when He knows we would raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Why is God keeping me in this dead-end job when I could be so much better used for the kingdom elsewhere. So we think. Friends, it's only when you come to understand the sovereignty and goodness and wisdom of God that you'll start viewing even suffering as a reason to fear the Lord and to trust Him and to love Him. Why? He's going to just slap a little Jesus on it, right? And it'll all be okay? No. Because you know that because of Jesus, Even your suffering is on a trajectory toward glory. God's grace is carrying you toward the best possible end. In Christ, your suffering, friends, in this life, you realize that your suffering in this life because of Jesus is the worst suffering you will ever experience for all of eternity. And because of Christ, the joys of this life are but a faint shadow of the explosion of glory that will fill our souls forever in the life to come. Beloved, our God plays the long game. Say it often, He plays the long game. A day to Him is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. God is never behind schedule. He's working in your life. He's working in history to bring it all to a glorious end. Jesus' death and resurrection assure us that this is so. So friends, our trials shouldn't cause us to doubt God, much less to berate Him internally in our thoughts, but to wait on Him and rejoice in Him with hearts full of godly fear and steadfast trust. History of stunning grace. Number two, the demand for exclusive devotion. 
In verse 14, Joshua pivots to the therefore. The only reasonable response to this avalanche of God's kindness is wholehearted allegiance. Verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Friends, I don't know if you noticed when we read it earlier, but the word serve appears multiple times, like seven times in verses 14 and 15. And when you, when you zoom out to all of chapter 24, it, it's mentioned like 18 times. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Don't serve the other gods. Point is, Israel must decide whose slaves they will be. Maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds like the exact opposite of what I would want for my life. Be a slave. Well, friends, don't you understand? God has wired you for worship. It's built into the hardware of who He has created us as human beings to be. You can never not serve someone or something. You have to serve somebody. You say, nope, not me. What I serve is nobody but myself. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my my ship. I'm going to do it my way. That's just how it's going to be. But friends, don't you see? You're proving the point. You have to serve someone. And if that person is yourself, then you're a slave to your own self-seeking desires, which is the worst bondage of all. To serve the Lord, on the other hand, is to serve the one where true freedom is found. To be ruled by God's grace is in fact to be liberated at the same time from our sin and rebellion that takes us to the grave, the false gods that enslave us. Joshua beckons the people to to take stock of the situation and ask themselves questions like this. Which God set His love upon you? What God delivered you? Which God fought your battles, Israel? Who's the one who gave you houses that you didn't build and vineyards that you didn't plant? It wasn't Baal. It wasn't Asherah or Kamash or, or Molech or any of the gods of Canaan. They didn't do a thing for you because they don't exist. So the only rational choice that you have is to put away your false gods and serve the Lord. I'm guessing you've thought of Joshua's famous phrase, choose this day whom you will serve. I'm guessing, like like me actually, (laughs) you've thought of this, this, this imperative, this injunction to the people as a choice between serving Yahweh on the one hand, or serving the false gods on the other. But notice that's not actually what Joshua said. Did you notice that? Look again at verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Pick your false god, Israel. Right? Who do you want? So Joshua's kind of pressing them to the wall. They've got to come down somewhere. If it's not on the Lord's side, well, you can take your pick between the ancestral gods that your fathers had in Mesopotamia, or you can pick the modern gods of Canaan. Pick your choice. You've got to serve somebody. Friends, you see what Joshua's doing? He's using this absurd rhetorical device to drive his point home. He says, serve the Lord... But if you're not going to do that, then take your pick from the non-gods, right? Well, that's really stupid, Joshua. Choosing between non-gods is really dumb. 
Exactly. That's my point. If you reject your Redeemer, you really are stupid, and the only options left are so absurd that they make no sense at all. Joshua is shocking their senses. You can't serve two gods. You can't claim to serve the Lord while hiding idols underneath your tent. The Lord has exclusive rights to the property of your life. He has claimed total allegiance. Because of His grace to you, He deserves total allegiance. Because last week we talked about the fact that our actions are always downstream from what we love. And what that means functionally in relation to sin is that all of our sinful choices are downstream from the one we serve. Our sins reveal our idols, who we worship. We talk about it often. An idol isn't just a stone or metal statue that you bow in front of. It's anything that you value more than the Lord. It's anything that gives you a, a greater sense of security and identity than God. Anything that you put your hope in more than Christ. Friends, how often did you do a diagnostic check of your heart? I know there's a spiritual danger in being so kind of morbidly introspective that you never set your eyes on Jesus because you're just always wallowing around in your guilt and shame. But on the other hand, friends, there is a spiritual danger in never peeling back the layers of your heart to discern what your heart craves and who it worships. So if you want to identify your idols, if you're wanting help in that, I would encourage you to ask questions like this. What do I have to have? In order to be happy or secure, what do I have to have? I'll point you toward who you worship. What is so important to me that I'm willing to sin to get it? Reveal your idol. What makes me angry or despondent when I don't get it? Reveals who we worship. Friends, maybe today, like with Israel, the Lord is bringing you to the point of a choice. He's pressing you against the wall. Am I really going to serve illicit sexual pleasure? Do I, do I really believe that's where true life is? Am I really going to give my life to the God of affirmation or acceptance by others? Is that who I'm going to worship? Am I really going to pursue the need to always have to be in control? of others in every situation. Do I really want to bow down to the earthly security of a career and money? Is that who I'm going to worship? Friends, the Lord has exclusive rights to our lives, not because He's a tyrant, but because He's a gracious Savior. True life and peace and joy are found in Him alone. Verses 16 to 18, the people respond just how you hope they might, right? Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord, our God, who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt. Verse 18, therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Okay, sweet, right? Joshua, here's where you do the come forward invitation, right? You, you hand out some decision cards for the people to write down what, what they're doing, right? Here's the, the Christian summer camp moment where everyone throws their stick into the fire, right? To, to symbolize their devotion to the Lord. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. 
what in the world is Joshua doing, right? The people say they're all in, and Joshua's like, nope, too bad, so sad. You can't serve the Lord, and he won't forgive your sins. It's like one of the most shocking statements in the whole Bible. Put that on a Hobby Lobby sign in your house, right? I can see it now, right next to the, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord. He won't forgive your sins. Again, Joshua is trying to shock their system. He's not giving an absolute statement. He seems to be taking aim at a kind of words-only posturing type of worship that still holds on to one's idols. Friends, God doesn't forgive feigned repentance. He's a jealous and holy God. Of course, he's not jealous of, of, of other false gods and their glory. He knows that they're nothing. But he is zealous for us to prize and praise who he is. Not because he's a narcissist, but because he's worthy. And he knows that our highest good and the satisfaction of our souls can only be found in his supreme worth. God's jealousy is an expression of his love. Friends, this exchange with Joshua and the people helps us, I think, to understand something of the nature of true Christian conversion, of what it means to really be a Christian. Friends, being a Christian is not simply about being a nice person, right? It's about being made new by the Spirit of God. It's not about praying a certain prayer, even asking Jesus into your heart or any outward decision, but but about becoming a true, genuine disciple of Jesus. It means you really do turn from sin. You really do reject idolatry. You really do trust in Christ alone to save you. And that the pattern of your life amid all the struggles and all the mistakes and all the sins, it continues to be one of repentance and faith. You see, friends, there's just no such thing as a Christian who accepts Jesus as Savior but refuses to follow Him as Lord. That's a non-thing. There's no such thing as a, as a genuine profession of faith in Christ with no desire to submit to Christ as King. Because this is actually one reason you hear us as elders seek to guard the Lord's table whenever we take the supper together. We'll say something to the effect of, Christ intended this Lord's Supper to be celebrated by local churches of baptized men and women who have placed their faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Why do we say that? Because baptism is the initial and fundamental way King Jesus expects Christians to publicly evidence his lordship over their lives. And baptism is also how Jesus commands local churches like ours to affirm the credibility of a believer's profession of faith and mark that person off from the world in the membership of the church. Baptism is reserved for those who evidence true repentance and faith as best the church can tell. And then the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is how the church keeps affirming the credibility of a believer's confession. It's like pushing the refresh button every time we take the supper, pushing the refresh button on the person's baptism. It's a way we corporately renew the line between the church and the world. So in in baptism, the church says, yes, we think you're a Christian, as best we can tell. And in the Lord's Supper, The church says, yes, we still think you're a Christian. Praise God. Say, John, are you saying that if I haven't been baptized, I ought not to take the Lord's Supper? I'm not the one saying that. But I do need to tell you that King Jesus is. 
Jesus has not given you as an individual the autonomous authority to to affirm the credibility of your profession of faith. He's given that responsibility to the local church in baptism. This this thick understanding of the ordinances is what we understand church membership to be. It's the corporate discipleship of the church in the context of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's the church doing its best to ensure that the membership of the church are regenerate, actual believers who've been truly converted to faith in Christ. Back to the text. In verse 21, the people restate their commitment to the Lord. And so in verse 22, Joshua calls the people as witnesses against themselves. If if they ever depart from the Lord, they will have indicted themselves. Look at verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Friends, there are some times when the Bible becomes like 3D in its beauty, and this is one of those times. You see, there's, there's more to this place Shechem than meets the eye. Genesis 12 tells us that when the Lord called Abraham out of his idolatry in Ur and into the worship of the Lord in Canaan, Shechem was the first place that Abraham stopped. And while at Shechem, Abraham worshipped the Lord by a certain tree, an oak or a terebinth of Moreh. And it was there at that tree that God first promised Abraham, you and your descendants will have this land of Canaan. Years later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, re-entered Canaan after years of servitude to his uncle Laban in Padan Aram. Genesis 33 says that, that Jacob, on his way back into Canaan, bought a piece of land in Shechem. And he built an altar there, and he named the altar El Elohe Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. And finally, in Genesis 35, Jacob commanded his family to put away their foreign gods and to serve the Lord alone. Genesis 35.4 says this, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Friends, the reason Joshua set up a large stone at the Terebinth tree in Shechem as a witness to the covenant was because that tree itself was a monument. Not only to the faithfulness and grace of Israel's promise-keeping God, but also to Israel's exclusive worship of God alone. By renewing the covenant at Shechem, Joshua brought Israel back to where it all started, to the very geographic epicenter of God's covenant love. And at this point in their history, they didn't gather as those hoping for a promised inheritance, but as those living in the blessing of an inheritance received. This terebinth tree was a living show and tell to the staggering faithfulness of a God who always keeps his word despite his people's sin. So they dare not turn away from him now. Well, friends, that's the end of the book of Joshua. It's the end of the story. 
The people lived in the land, fearing and serving the Lord of the promise, at least for a short time. Let's read verses 29 to 33 to see the epilogue of the story. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. If we're honest, two deaths and three burials seems like a depressing way to end such an encouraging book. The people buried Joshua, who for the first time in the book receives the title Servant of the Lord, just like Moses did in chapter 1. The people then bury the ancient bones of, of Joseph in the promised land, which Joseph had requested by faith before his death in Egypt that the people do, according to Genesis 50 and Hebrews 11. Finally, the people bury Eliezer, the high priest. Israel's leader, Joshua, their savior, Joseph, their high priest, Eliezer, all dead and buried in the land of promise. Compounding these burials are the ominous words of verse 31, that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And what this implies is that once Joshua departed from the earth, the people departed from the Lord. Read Judges. Read Judges, friends. That's exactly what happened. I've tried to emphasize this throughout the study of the book. But the way this book of Joshua ends reminds us that the main point of Joshua cannot be be like Joshua and serve the Lord. Friends, the main point is that God's people need Joshua to serve the Lord. As long as Joshua lives, the people serve God. But when Joshua dies, so does the people's allegiance. Friends, this book of Joshua ends with a, sen a sense of, of longing of incompleteness, doesn't it? It leaves us with a desire for a leader like Joshua who lives to bring God's people into His promised rest. It leaves us with a longing for a Savior like Joseph who lives to deliver His people from certain death. It leaves us with a yearning for a priest like Eliezer who ever lives to intercede for his sinful people for all the ways that Joshua reminds us of Jesus here, he could not be more different from him. The book of Joshua essentially ends with the words, and he died. Friends, thanks be to God, the New Testament Gospels that tell the story of Jesus essentially ends with the best words ever written. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. As my friend Sam Amadi said so eloquently, death permanently interrupted Joshua's conquest. 
but Jesus permanently interrupted death's conquest. Our better Joshua conquered the grave itself, winning the battle that Joshua couldn't even begin to fight. And even now, our Christ is preparing our final inheritance for all who trust in Him to rescue them from the penalty of their sin. Friends, as the people of God, you and I don't look back to a terebinth tree and a large stone next to it. We look back to a bloody tree of mercy and an empty tomb, which assure us that God has always been faithful and which beckon us to live lives of fear and of service with sins forgiven. You see, the the epilogue of Joshua, it points us to our need for a living Savior. That's point three. Our need for a living Savior. Israel's faithfulness, friends, extended as far as Joshua's death. Our faithfulness extends as far as Jesus' life. By His amazing grace, Romans 6.4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Redeeming Grace Church, the crucified Christ lives. The crucified Christ lives. Therefore, you can be faithful because you are united by faith to his victory over sin and death. If we have any chance, friends, of fearing the Lord and serving our promise-keeping God as long as we live with genuine, enduring allegiance, friends, our only hope is to look to the one in whom all God's promises find their yes and amen, our far better and far greater Joshua. Let's pray. Oh, Father, continue to impress your gracious word into our heart this morning so that we might live for you and for you only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.